The world is a new place, and we're all making adjustments. It moves faster and changes direction more frequently than ever before. People feel stuck, unfulfilled, and lost in their lives. I hear this all too often. Where are the answers? Someone please just give me the answers. Well, what if I told you the answers are finally here? My name is Scott McDonald, and I was once just like you. Join me on my process of personal development, pathway of success, and pursuit of happiness. For you see, my job isn't just to ask questions. My job isn't to just listen. My job is to ensure what happened to me does not happen to you. This is the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McDonald, and today I'm rejoined by former NCAA coach, Dan Lichterman. Dan, great to have you back on the show. Hey, buddy. How are you? Doing fantastic, man. I'm just uh, doing my thing here in this, uh, you know, normal but not normal world of ours, considering, uh, you know, me working from home the last five years, nothing's changed for me, but it's changed for a lot of people (laughs) in the world. So I'm flourishing right now. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) So on today's episode for our audience, we're going to be uh, going back to what we talked about in Dan's first episode was going micro. And uh, let's go through that again. Like, you know, for you, Dan, when you hear about going, going micro with your development, going micro with your plan, um, you as a coach, what's your definition of going micro? I think it's, it's just really dialing in on each detail and what, each detail means and what it means within each detail to, to be successful, right? Like not thinking, you know, whether, well, I, I have to go score goals. Well, how are you going to score more goals? You know, what, what little things are you going to do to create more scoring opportunities or what are you going to do to work on your shot or your shot selection or, um, you know, the, the places you put yourself in to shoot the puck, um, you know, same with, uh, you know, just figuring out how you're going to get to each detail and, and the process within each detail of, of making sure you, you're doing everything you can. That's a great definition. And, and our topic today is on the recruiting process. We're going to look at this from the uh, athlete and family side. And then later in the second part of the show, we're going to look at it from the recruiting program side. So let's start on starting with the athlete um, family. What's, what's the starting steps? What, what's the process there to get that journey going? I think first and foremost, it's, it's identifying, you know, places you're interested in, in, uh, not just playing, but also going to school. You know, I, I think back, there's, there's a kid that I recruited at Maine. Um, you know, I remember it, it came down, it was between us and another school. And just as, as we were going through the process and talking to the kid and, and figuring out what she really wanted to end up doing and studying and things like that. Well, it turned out that the other school didn't even have that program. So I, I'm not sure why the recruiting process continued with, with that other school and, and things like, you know, um, and actually uh, as we were going through, I ran into the coach from the other school, um, you know, at a, at a tournament or whatever, we we're recruiting at the same thing. And we were just chatting about the kid and, and I said, Oh yeah. Hey, like, do you, do you know what, what she's interested in studying? She's like, yeah, yeah, I know we don't have that here, but we can make something work. I said, like, what, what are you doing here? Like, why are, why are you still recruiting this kid? And she's a good player and, and became one of the better players, I, I think, that our program had. But, you know, I, I think in the, in the big picture as a student, you know what, you, you got to f- figure out a little bit of what you're interested in. I'm, I, I'm not a big believer in – you know, these kids who, who think they know what they want to do at grade 9, 10, 11, 12, I'm, st- I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do. But, um, you know, if you know that there's a program you want to study, don't waste your time 
and, and don't waste coaches time being interested in a program that at a school that doesn't have your program. So do your homework that way. Um, you know, I, I think from, from that standpoint, it really start to narrow the pool down a little bit. Um, and that's not to say close doors, uh, but also if you want to go into education and be a teacher, if you're looking at schools and programs that, that, that don't have that package for you to become what you want to become, then probably spend your time in a different avenue. Would you say that for the athlete, they should be taking the subjects that they're more passionate about in their high school career and considering that during this process for picking the right education program? Uh, I, th- I think somewhat, uh, you know, again, like some kids have their, their hearts set on being whatever, whatever it is, right? Like, uh, you know, it, take engineering, like, you know, something that's, that's fairly specific, you know, like, um, you know, like an engineer, whatever, like look at, schools that have engineering programs, you know, um, you know, if, you know, or, you know what, you want to be, uh, go into business, you know, find those, those schools that have, you know, those, those well sought after well-renowned business programs. Um, you know, and I, I mean, I do think you can get your degree kind of in anything and, and go, still do anything but you know like if if you want to be a doctor like we had another kid at Maine who who was a veterinary science major like that's fairly specific right like it's not just well I like dogs like it's you know you're um you know it's a fairly specific thing that you're that you're looking at it's not uh well geez I like I like English right um you know so it's again it's finding those right fits uh academically and and then also athletically like um you know for your goalie uh geez i I really want to go to x university but you know they have three goalies that are uh sophomores or younger so like they're probably not recruiting a goalie so that probably not the right fit for you athletically even though academically it may be a great fit for you um you know for me when i was looking at schools you know what i crossed pretty much all the ivy league schools off my list because it wasn't a good fit academically for me um you know so it's, it's things like that it's finding finding your lane finding um you know and get micro in your own thought of okay this this is what I want and, and same with geez you know what I, I really prefer to be in a big city or I'd really prefer a smaller campus those those kind of little little details if if you don't care you don't care that's fine um, but some people do and, and that has to go into into that process too so overall choosing the right education is should be number one on the priority in, in, in searching for your collegiate program yeah, I th- again, I think it's a balance, but, but one thing I always told kids when, when they came uh, to our campus was as you go through, let's say the first day of training, you blow out your knee and you're not able to play again. Could you see yourself living and going to school here for four years? And, and I always thought that was kind of a good way to, to look at it. If you take athletics out of the picture, could you go to this school? Could you be here? Could you live in this town? Um, you know, could this be a place where, where you could live for four years without playing hockey? And that brings me to my next part. Home versus away. What's the benefits of each? Staying close to home. What's the benefits of, uh, of being a part of a program like that? I think support group is, is the first thing that you have. Your support group is closer to you. Yeah, I mean, family. just, you know, from, from a parent standpoint, you know, your parents are able to get to games easier. Um, you know, again, like I, I remember recruiting kids from the Boston area when we were in Maine and we were only a couple hours away. But we had, you know, talked to kids, well, you know what, I'm going to go to one of the five schools within 30 minutes of my house. You can't compete with that. We can't move our, can't move your campus, right? Um, and again, I think that's a, it's an individual thing. Um, you know, when, when I was at Maine, we had a handful of kids from British Columbia, 
uh, you can't get any farther, <laughs> you know? So, um, but it was, it was just the right fit for those kids. Right. And, and there was really nothing close by. So they knew they had to, had to go. I, I think, um, sometimes kids will look at it. Well, I want to be close to home in case something goes bad, then I can just scoot back home. Right. Uh, so you got to under, understand your reasons for wanting to be close to home and, and make sure they're, positive reasons and not reasons well if this goes sideways i'm right i'm right here where mommy and daddy can protect me right um you know there's a lot of families that are close there's some families that aren't and some people who prefer to be as far away as they can so they can you know do their own thing and and not be uh drawn or burdened by by their family um you know so again that's that's some of that micro that that you got to figure out for yourself and and what works for you and that's why you know the it, it's hard in a lot of ways to talk about the recruiting process and, and make it this kind of broad stroke um when the recruiting process for each kid is so personal um you know i know kids that they walk on a campus and they're like you know what, this is it. I'm th- I, This is where I feel comfortable. I know I want to go here. And there's other kids that they're, they take their time. They need to take their time. And if they get pressured into making a, an early decision without doing all their homework, then there's less chance that, uh, I would say less of a percentage that it will turn out positive. Just has, has more ways to go negative because you're not, a hundred percent sold on your decision, right? The, the, the more, uh, the higher percentage you feel positive about your decision, I think the, the more likely you're going to have that success because you know that it was your decision and, and you felt confident in that decision. So now already before you start, you've got that positive feeling about, about your decision. What's the positives of playing at a program that you're four or five, six hours away from home? And I think this really goes to the life skills that you can achieve. Yeah, I I think there's, there's less distractions, uh, less continual distractions. You know, you, you go and, and you really, um, you really rely a lot more on your teammates, um, you know, to be your support network and your family, you rely a little more on your coaches. You, you rely a little more on yourself to, to take care of things. Um, you know, but there's, there's kids too who, who stay close to home and they do that anyway. Um, you know, but I think going a little farther away, you, you have to become a little more self-reliant um, and be a little more able and willing to, to ask for help when, when you need it because you can't just, you know, turn to, to mommy and, or daddy and, and say, hey, help me do this. Let's start with uh, the different leagues of the two governing bodies, youth sports and NCAA. We'll start with NCAA first. W- what's the difference between Ivy, Big Ten, you know, the, the east side, the west side, what, all, those, all those conferences? Well, I mean, I think with even within every conference, every program is going to put, um, you know, puts a little little bit of different uh, different amount in into their program, into their budget. Um, you know, most most programs now at the Division One level, you're, you're kind of getting the same stuff. Um, you know, there's some different things that Big Ten schools can do um, from an Ivy standpoint. Um, you know. Uh, all financial aid is need-based financial aid. So there's no athletic grants in, in an Ivy league. Um, so that's, I think a little bit of a misnomer in, in a lot of ways um, where people are like, well, I'm getting a scholarship to, you know, whatever Ivy league school. Well, the, the Ivy league schools, like it's everybody in kind of the same need-based pool. So, um, so there's not really athletic scholarships there. You, you, you can get in because of your athletics, but, um, but any financial aid that's, that's doled out is, is just need-based financial aid. Um, you know, from, from East and West, uh, the, you know, having, having worked in, in both the Western league and, and the, uh, and hockey East, 
you know, the, the schedule is a little bit different where, um, you know, when I was in the WCHA, everything was a series. Like you played the same opponent both nights in a row. Um, you know, it wasn't where you're playing, you know, in that say, you know, Minnesota one night and St. Cloud the next night. Like it was always, you always played two games. And sometimes like with St. Cloud, when I was at Minnesota state, we do a home and home. I think we did that with the Gophers uh, once too, um, where, where we played home and home instead of, instead of two in, in each other's barn. But um, it's it, so your, you know, your practice week is set up a little differently where at hockey East, uh, you go on the road because it's an unbalanced schedule. You only play three games against each team. And I don't believe that's changed. Um, but so like one night you're going to Boston, you're playing Boston university one night, and then you're playing Northeastern the next night. Right. So, um, so your practice week uh, from a coaching standpoint, and then from a player preparation standpoint, it's a little bit different where you're not just dialed in on one opponent for the week. You're, you know, you got to kind of have two different game plans that are, that are working at the same time. Um, it's a little different, like in at Maine, like when people would come up, if we were playing two, they'd play two against us in the same weekend there just to, to limit the travel. Um, you know, so, so those travel things are a little different. Um, hockey East as well, because there's so many of those Boston area schools, I would say there's what, like five, five teams in that league that are within an hour of each other. So the, the travel is a little different in, in that league than it is in, in the WCHA where everything's a little more spread out, um, you know, those are in ECAC is similar to uh, to hockey East that way, where you have travel partners, and, and so you're playing different opponents every uh, every night of the weekend rather than than the same same people twice. What well, talk to me about the scholarship money? How does that work? Because everyone thinks everybody's getting a full ride, but in in my experience with the people that I know who went to the NCAA. Um, sometimes it, it's not always a full ride. It's maybe your first year you pay. If you succeed, we cover the next three. Sometimes it's 50, 50. If it's a hometown kid, how do they distribute the scholarship money? Yeah. Again, like every, every program is going to handle, handle their scholarship budget differently. And every program, you know, full, full funding, uh, for a division one program is 18 scholarships. So you do the math there. There's not just 18 kids on the team, right? And so there's, there's not, you know, not everyone's getting a full scholarship. Typically, you know, you, you probably have anywhere from, you know, 12 to, you know, down to even eight kids on, on full scholarships just so you can kind of spread the money around. And then it's, you know, making it work within the budget. And, and again, like usually for schools, um, in-state tuition is cheaper than out-of-state tuition or international tuition. Um, you know, every school is going to handle that a little differently. Like at, at Maine, and again, I don't know, it may have changed. Uh, our, actually, our Canadian kids paid in-state tuition. Um, you know, and again, the dollar was at, was at a different stage back then than it, than it is now. Actually, it was fairly similar back then than it is now. It got pretty, the Canadian dollar got pretty strong there for a while and now it's dipped back down. But, um, you know, so every program is going to kind of handle that a, a little bit differently. Um, and then some programs aren't fully funded on, on the scholarship side. So that's, that's another great question to ask of of the program and then it's it you know it's also um you gotta you gotta see kind of where where you fit in too um you know i i i had a kid at maine actually when i got there she was a walk-on so she was paying her own way um and she did that her first year when i wasn't there her second year she did that which was my first year and the kid turned into you know one of our top players. So we found some money for her and by her last year, she was our captain, you know? So, um, you know, that, that it, it happens all sorts of ways, but, but scholarships, I think the other thing people have to realize it's you're not, you're not guaranteed four years. Scholarships are year to year renewable. 
I think most most programs will, hey, you know what, we're offering you, if we offer you a full scholarship, we're, you're planning on doing that for four years, uh, but things happen, right? Like, um, I mean, I, I know personally for me, when I was coaching, I would never take away a kid's scholarship because they got injured, because that's out of their control. Uh, when I have in the past taken away kids scholarships because of behavioral issues or, you know, breaking our team rules, um, you know, through that process. Um, you know, obviously if things are going on academically, um, that's a, that's another reason, but, but really as coaches, like if you're, you know, if you're confident enough to, to give a kid a full scholarship for one year, you know, they, you should be confident that they should earn it for, for their four years. And I'm glad that you brought that up about, you know, as fast as you can get it, you can lose it just as fast. Probably probably faster. You can lose it faster than you can get it. uh, Absolutely. And that, and that's a reality. I don't think a lot of athletes and their families understand. I think they believe because of this entitled world we live in now, no, you gave that to us. So that's mine. Um, what is the process when that does happen? When it, is that you can still go to school here or is that you're sending them home? Um, as it varies, um, you know, and that's where I think every, every situation is different. I know with the, um, I've had it actually in, in my, I've had three different situations in, in my career. One, um, was because of a legal situation. Uh, we took a kid's scholarship. They ended up being able to transfer and, and go somewhere else. Um, other two, there was one where we had a kid that, that we relieved of her scholarship. She was going into her sophomore year, um, and it was early in the year. We said, you know what, we'll pay for you to be at school for this year and then we're not renewing your scholarship after that and then the third situation was a kid who was in her senior year um so we're like you know what we'll pay for you to finish out your your senior year you're just not part of our hockey team so um you know again every every situation is is going to be uh individual and and different and and most programs will will kind of have um some guidelines kind of laid out in in those scenarios and um you know but uh the easiest way is just don't put yourself in that situation i mean most most places won't uh like if you're on a on a full scholarship and and you have a terrible year uh i think it looks pretty bad on a program to go back to it's just like in an nhl contract you're not going back to the guy hey you know what my bad can you give us half of that back um you know, uh, I, I just don't think most people don't, don't do business that way. Um, you know, uh, although there, you know, it always happens the other way, whether it's an athlete, you know, a student athlete or an NHL player, Hey, by the way, I just had a great year. What else you got for me? <laughs> you know? So, um, sometimes you just gotta be, be happy with what you get. And sometimes as a coach, it's like, geez, you know what? I, this kid's only on a, on a quarter uh, or, or a half for us and, and they're doing great. So, um, you know, good. Now we can, we can keep adding good solid pieces that, that can make you a, a contender. It's, it's really no different than, than managing a salary cap at, at, the, uh, at the professional level. When you have to deliver that news to those athletes who uh... – who broke the rules will say um, does the family try to intervene right after that and have a lot of remorse or is it, is it understood and you move on? Uh, again, I, every family's different. I think, uh, you know, this way, would, uh, would you advise once that message is delivered for families not to try and intervene? Cause it's just not going to happen once it's, once it's a done deal. Yeah. I, I honestly, I, I would love for, you know what? I mean, take, take some ownership other than call and apologize. I mean, um, you know, it's always, you know, and this is, I think part, part of the why hockey gets a bad rap. Uh, a lot of times our hockey parents is, is everyone's always looking for someone else to blame, right. Instead of 
you know, either look look down the hallway at, at your kid or look in the mirror and, and see your tell your kid to look in the mirror and see what's going on. Um, you know, we we had another situation when I was at Maine um where I, I found out uh just through some other stuff that that there was a violation of our team rules in our preseason. Um and I, I didn't know like I didn't I knew a couple people who were involved. I didn't know the extent of it. And and so we were in a weight training session and, and I went in, I said, Listen, like I I know there are at least a couple of you who who broke or who violated a team rule. Um and I said you have 24 hours to come into my office and tell me if you did. And, and the consequence was sitting a game. Um, and I said, if you don't come to me within 24 hours and I find out that you violated the rule, then you know what? I don't care who you are. If you're a starting goalie, if you're a leading scorer, if you're a best defender, you're done here. That's it. Like, you know, you, you have to sometimes set, set down that line and, um, and again, it was a fairly innocent, like it, it wasn't an egregious, like something happened and it was, it was a, a minor violation of our rules, but it was still a violation of our rule. And so we ended up, I had a parade into my office throughout the next day and um, we played actually our exhibition game that year with seven skaters and a goalie. So, you know, our kids sat out and were pretty embarrassed by um, sitting up in the stands while, while their seven teammates played. <laughs> um, you know, so it, uh, you know, again, it is what it is and, and you have to, to make those choices and, and those things. But, um, you know, I had, I actually, through that process, had one parent call me and thank me for holding their child accountable. Um, I don't, I don't think I had anyone call me and, and well, I had one, one of the people who was involved in that was one that, that we ended up uh, letting go from our team that year uh, right after the preseason. But um, and of course their parents weren't very happy, but uh, you know, again, I, I think and I one, one other student athlete who, who was the first one who came in, who said, you know, she's like, I talked to my dad and my dad said, if you had anything to do with it, it's not worth your next two years to sit out one game, you know? So, you know, you got to kind of think of some things that way too of, you know, and again, kids are, are going to make mistakes. Um, you know, whether you're in high school or you're in college, you're going to make some mistakes and um, it's just owning, owning those mistakes and then dealing with the, the consequence and hopefully, you know, the consequences sit in one game isn't really that bad uh, compared to never playing collegiate hockey again. Taking that extreme ownership too, that can really, you know, a coach can look at that athlete as he or she leaves the office and says, okay, there's someone who's able to get it and perhaps make an improvement and, and move on from that and take it as a learning experience. Oh, exactly. And and it's not about making excuses like, well, I only did it a little or I wasn't going to do it, but this person told me to do it. Like we all have our choices to make, right? Um, you know, same in practice. You can choose to work hard or you can choose to cut corners. That's really your deal. So own it, own whichever one you want to do. Let's move on to the, the different divisions. There's division one in the NCAA. There's division three. There's ACHA, which is, I believe, considered Division Two. Uh, well, no, there's in, within the ACHA, which is, is club hockey. Club, club hockey. There's there's Division One, Two, and Three within that. Okay, so take take us through the the, the main differences, starting obviously with D one because that would be a no brainer, and then working our way down. Yeah, so NCAA Division One, uh, two biggest differences are um you know they're you're allowed athletic scholarships and usually the the budgets uh, of your program are are you know for your travel and for your equipment and and those kinds of ancillary things are are going to be higher than they are at the division three or, or acha level um you know with that said there's some uh, some division three programs with some some really good budgets 
Um, Division three season's a little bit shorter. Uh, so they start a little bit later than, than Division One. so you play a few less games. Um, you know, typically at Division three, you, you may have, <clears throat> excuse me, you may have one less coach, um, <clears throat> one less paid coach anyway. You can have volunteer coaches. Um, <clears throat> and then ACHA is, a, is kind of a whole different deal. Um, is actually governed by USA Hockey, um, so there's there's actually a lot less rules on uh, recruiting, on budgets, on on all sorts of stuff um, that that you don't see at at NCAA. So um, ACHA, there's some schools that do give scholarships to to kids. Um, you know, typically they're the you know. There's some schools that have paid coaches at the ACHA level. There's some schools that have, you know, kind of part-time coaches. There's some schools where it's like true club hockey where it's run by the players. Uh, the players do everything from the scheduling to the coaching to the recruiting to whatever. So it's kind of a, a mixed bag at, at, uh, at that level. Um, but there's also some, some great ACHA hockey. And especially for a kid who, you know, who wants to just go to school and still play hockey, but not be, not feel like hockey is your be all end all. It's, it's a, it's a great experience. When you were coaching and it was time to start recruiting, what were you looking for? And what were the questions you were asking the coaches of, of the prospects you looked at? That's a great question. I think every, um, again, every recruiting year is different and every situation is different. Like when, when I came in at Minnesota State as an assistant, our head coach had already been there for, and he was going into his fourth or fifth year by the time I got there. So like our process was, uh, we were in a little different situation where we were looking more specifically need-based rather than trying to recreate a culture. When I got to Maine, I was the third head coach in four years. So it was really trying to restart that program and develop a culture. Actually, I remember when I hired Sarah Samard, who's now Sarah Reichenbach, who's, whose husband is the head coach there and she's assistant back as an assistant coach there. Um, I remember saying to her uh, when I first hired her that, you know what, we're going to get this thing turned around by the time we're all out of here. So, um, you know, which I, I, you know, the year after I left, they won 17 games, made the playoffs, um, you know, but, but the recruiting process at that time, what we were looking for was character and culture um, and, and kids who, who worked hard. Um, the first kid that I recruited there, um, the first of my own kids that I recruited there, the, the main reason, like I, she was a kid from small town, British Columbia. Um, I saw her play at the Western Shields and saw her play against Notre Dame. And they, they got beat. It was either 12 or 15, nothing. It was something big. Um, and this kid from the drop of the puck to the last whistle, you, you thought the score was 0-0. And that's why I wanted her because, you know, we just needed in our program there, those kids who were willing to compete no matter what the score was. Um, you know, as your program gets established and different now, geez, you know what? We just graduated a big right shot winger. I need a big right shot winger. Um, you know, uh, again, the, you can never um, underestimate the character and the compete and, and all that stuff, but um, it, it it changes depending on where a program's at in their process, depending where a coach is at in their process as well. It goes to show you never know who's watching, no matter what the situation. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. What questions do you have for coaches when, when you scout a player that you like? Uh, I think it's a, a lot of things like, you know, obviously their work ethic, um, you know, what are they like in practice? Um, you know, do they push the pace? Um, do they get 
do they get frustrated? Do they get, uh, you know, are, are they someone that's going to help push practice along or are they going to drag practice down? Um, you know, what's their relationship like with, with the coach, you know, are, are they able to communicate with the coach and, and so much of it too, as a college coach, it's, it's being able to have those coaches you trust uh, as well, because there's a lot of people who will, Oh yeah, this kid's great. This kid's great. And all of a sudden they get to your program and it's like, um, they're not at all what you told me. So, um, you know, that's where as a player, you have to be honest with yourself and, and you have to, you know, if a coach is, is selling you somewhere and, and helping you get somewhere, you got to go be that person that, that, and that player that they said you're going to be. Um, so that's, that's another part of the challenge uh, as an athlete is, is be, you got to be your true self. Now moving over to the athlete, what should the athlete be doing during his or her season to get in touch with coaches, to get noticed, all that stuff. And, and I know that's, uh, it's hard for them to do because they, they, they have to sell themselves basically to people in your position. Well, the, the first and foremost thing that, that sells yourself is how you play. And so that's, that should be your focus. You know, so many of these kids, like you're, you're going to get seen, you know, like the, there's the Stony Creek tournaments, there's whatever tournaments that, you know, or, or in within the spring stuff, um, you're, you're going to get seen. So, uh, and I think you said it too, like there's always someone watching. So, you know, you, you can't, you can't allow yourself to have those off games. So you can have off shifts. You can have that, that rare game that geez, you're not at your highest level, but you got to try to prepare to play at your highest level when someone's watching you play. And, and that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest selling point that you have. That's the biggest advertisement you have is how you play. Um, so, um, you know, I think, you know, all these emails and whatever, like, <clears throat> I think it's good, you know, especially if there's, you know, to let a program know that you're interested, but I think sending videos and sending tape, like coaches don't like they're watching tape all the time. They don't want to watch your game unless they ask for it. Um, you know, so that's where I would, I would shy away from sending videos unless the coach says, Hey, can can you send me a video or send me a link to like if your games are on hockey TV or if they're on, you know, someone's crazy parent puts them on YouTube or, or whatever it is, or they're going to ask your coach for, for game tape on you. Because um, most of the time, like when you send a highlight video, you're sending your best plays. You, you don't get a real true sense of, of being able to watch that player. And I think, like I said, the last time we talked, um, you know, what you do without the puck. Like, you're, you're not sending clips, hey, look how great this, this partner support was, right? Like, you're, yeah. you're sending clips of, you, you know, the toe show and, and freaking snipping one bar down or whatever, but you didn't send the clip of the six that you missed high glass that created two-on-ones going the other way, right? And then you didn't back check. So, um, you know, so I, I think some of it is don't worry so much about, marketing yourself worry more about playing better when that, when it matters and that goes again work hard on yourself not on your job uh, and to continue from that as well you know i was talking to kim mccullough earlier today and there's two players i defined for her um who are not the superstars there's the road runner that goes a million miles an hour all over the court, the field, the ice. And then there's the, but the success rate is low. And then there's the passive athlete whose success rate is high. Do coaches recognize that obviously after identifying who the top athletes are in the first five minutes of the game? I, I think the, the good ones do. Um, you know, again, you can't have, you can't have a whole team of top three forwards. It's just like your dynamic doesn't work. There's not enough pucks to go around for everybody. Um, and then you don't have people to, to play those other roles. So my, my issue, I think at, 
at Maine was we all we had were were bottom six forwards, but um, you know that's a <laughs> that's a, a different problem. But um, you know, again, I think um, you have to to play the way you play, and and then be thankful when there's a coach that appreciates that, right? Like, I mean, I know for me in the recruiting process, there are some kids that, you know, they were, they were good, really good players and would have been the most skilled players on our team after meeting the kid and talking to the kid. Um, I knew that, that they weren't going to be the right fit for me. Like I wasn't going to be able to coach them the best I, that, and get the best out of them. And I knew they weren't the right fit for our program at that time. Um, just because it, they were too too needy, too high maintenance, um, you know, and and just you know, you know, kids who walk in, I hey, I know you've got a a sophomore who wears this number, but that's my number, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, well, if if the number on your back is more important than how you play, then then that's a to me that's a red flag, right? Um, you know, a, a kid who walks in and says, well, I have to be on the power player. I have to play center or whatever. Like, you know, those, those kinds of things for, for me are, are red flags. And, and I know how one of the, one of the greatest things I learned about myself as a coach is who can I coach? Right. Because our, I was going to be a better coach and our team was going to be better if I had more kids that I was going to be able to help get better. Um, so it's, it's figuring out though for the good coaches, I think they figure out those situations of, um, you know what, I, I, I need to bring in kids that I can coach and kids that I can get the most out of rather than just bringing in the best kids. Um, sometimes the best kid is a great kid and they're going to elevate everybody around them. And so that's, that's also, I think a, a question that's asked a lot from from college coach to club coach, you know, does this kid elevate the other players around them or, uh, or do they deflate the players around them? Right. So, um, you know, that's, that's just another little, little habit for kids to, to think about. Um, so I, I think, you know, the, the, the good coaches and the smart coaches are, are going to see those little things of what you do away from the puck um, of how you forecheck, how you, you know, are you funneling the forecheck into your, your next player or is it just about you getting the puck? And that's, you know, you talk about those kids who, you know, yeah, they're fast, they have good skill, but they don't accomplish anything within a game um, where there's some other kids. Yeah. Maybe they don't skate great. Maybe, but geez, you know what? The puck's always on their stick at the time, at the right time. Uh, they're always around the net, uh, those, those kinds of things. So, um, and again, some's going to depend on, on where a program's at and, and what you need. Um, you know, I always look at, there, there was a group of kids uh, that played at Wayne State, um, you know, a, again, 100 years ago when, when I was doing And these kids were average skill, average speed, but, man, their hockey IQ and their hockey IQ together um, – they were the, like the best line in the country because they just played the same pace. They were all on the same page. They were super hard to play against. It's not because, and, and it wasn't like uh, when Chrissy Wendell and Natalie Darwin's played together, with Kelly Stevens at Minnesota, where there are three Olympians where they would just fly and go like these kids were below average speed, but just played really well together and they were hard to play against. So, and, and that's a, a thing too. And talk about, coaching or whatever like you know finding those kids that that really fit together uh, and can can generate that chemistry is is hard to do as well and and it goes to show that there's there's plenty of opportunity even for those kind of players you, you don't have to be the Wayne Gretzky or you know or any of the top athletes out there to to get opportunity there there's there's programs who need a certain type of human being um talk to me about the the timeline on a program that's scouting a player from the first time you see them to the till when you decide you know what this is the right fit for us we have to pull the trigger now what's that timeline look like 
again, I, I think it's different for every player and, and different in every situation. I think, you know, um, schools right now, I think, you know, because of, of that early recruiting stuff, I think there's, there's, you know, there's a couple of classes that are pretty full, but they're going to leave maybe room for one kid. If there's a kid who's, who's a late bloomer that, that they find in, in that group. Um, you know, again, like I, I, from, from any standpoint that, you know, the people are making lists, uh, kids who are 10 years old, you know, Hey, I saw this 10 year old, when do they graduate? All right. They're on our list for, for that year. It's more like, once those decisions start being made and now with the, with the new rules, um, you know, with everything kind of starting going in after that grade 10, going into, into that grade 11, um, you know, that's, that's where your list start to get narrowed down now of, okay, here's who we really want to target. Here's who we really want to go after at, at that time. It used to be, you know, that was between your grade 11 and 12 is when, when we started to narrow those lists down, but we'd have lists of kids who are in grade seven, eight, you know, just kind of be, Hey, you know what? I saw this kid. I liked, I liked a, a little bit, but they're going to start to pick you apart now. And, and probably in that Bantam range, I, I would say right now, like Bantam's a pretty key uh, year in, in your development and in, you know, coaches starting to, to keep an eye and really start to pick apart. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Um, but I think now it's even better because that uh, the picking apart goes later. So, you know, geez, you know what? There's some things I didn't do at Bantam, but there were some things I liked. But now I really like the detail this kid's playing with in midget or their first year junior. Um, you know, where not, like in, in years past, it was like, well, I got to see this kid at Wee. And, you know, 12 years old, like, what, like, you know, I don't know what you were like at 12, but I, I know I wasn't a finished product at 12. Uh, I, I was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just the, the problem for you is that's where it peaked, right? Yeah, I was a little ahead of my time and then I was really <laughs> far behind my time when time actually came. Yeah, so, you know, so it's, um, I think the, the more time that a player has to mature and really turn into the player they can be, uh, I think is better for not just for the athlete, but also for the programs. Um, you know, there's going to be some kids that are super high end that you're, that are no brainers. Um, but that's the, the 1% of the 1%, right? Like, um, not everyone's getting one of those kids. So I think it's, it's way better for college hockey in general. Um, with this a little more patient process in, in the recruiting. But, um, I mean, I would say even even to kids, you know, when my daughter played peewee this year, I said, like, it's important what, what you do, like how you work, how you, you know, again, because it, it – and not not just because it leads to to college hockey, it leads to what what's next for you, right? Like it, it opens opportunities for you in what you can be doing next. And it's never too early to be thought of as a good player, you know, um, because, and this is where it's almost opposite. A, a lot of times, like I think a lot of times when you're on a team, it's easier to start kind of lower and, and work your way up. Whereas you, if you come in and hey, you know what, this kid is going to be our number one D and now they don't perform. That's, a, that's a big drop. Whereas you come in, you know, this kid's going to be serviceable. They're going to be a three, four, whatever. Holy crap. Now this kid's our number one. Right. I think from the recruiting side, it's, it's the other way. It's like you want to get noticed first and then get your game picked apart and, and see where you're at. And this has been a really good start to uh, us getting micro with the recruiting process. And I, I know we'll have to do an extension of this. The, the last question I want to ask you how much, so this is for the families to understand, how much control do they really have during the recruiting process um, in terms of initiating it? Um, initiating, very, very little. Um, you know, again, you can do something to express your interest or, or whatever, but 
um, you know, and now, you know, all these schools have, have the one day camps and stuff. And that's a, that's a great way to, to go to the school and get, you know, again, express your, your interest. It's a certainly a much, much bigger financial, um, uh, commitment <laughs> to, to express your interest than an email. Um, but you know, the, the thing is, and, and this is where, where I always tell kids, like, don't have your heart just set on one place. Like you can have your dream school, but, but be all right with some other schools because you know what, that dream school might not, they might not want you, but there's four other schools that do. And so if you just have your heart set on going to, to school A and ignore B through E, then you're going to end up with nowhere to play at the level that you want to be at. So, you know, have, have that dream, but then have some other places that, geez, you know what, I, I can be comfortable there. I can buy in there, um, you know, rather than, geez, oh, you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Okay. Yeah, my phone got low power. Uh, but, um, you know, so have, have those have those have more than one place that you like because if you have the one place that you really 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 want and that doesn't work out oh geez now i'm stuck going to this place again you're not gonna perform at your highest level because you wish you were somewhere else to sum it all up i think it's pretty plain and simple if you're good enough they'll find you yeah and but it's it's about being continually good enough right and and if it's that consistency that that will help you get found and there's that micro part that we're talking about dan this has been awesome i really appreciate it i'm looking forward to extending our talks as we go micro when it comes to student athletes and uh really uh, look looking forward to the next one and we'll be talking again very soon sounds great scotty thanks this is scott mcdonald with the real experience student athlete podcast signing out